Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host Denise Messenger for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Preserve and protect your health by listening live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today, which is October 28, 2015. We have a wonderful show for everyone. We're going to be talking about the recent book, The Gut Solution, And we have with us today, as our guests, they're also the authors of The Gut Solution, Dr. Michael Lawson and Jessica Del Pozio. Dr. Lawson is a board-certified gastroenterologist with Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. He's also a clinical professor with the University of California, Davis, and he's done a lot of volunteering work in the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, and Cambodia. He has treated adults with IBS since 1982, and he was also voted a Best Doctor by the Sacramento Magazine in 2007. Jessica Del Pozio, PhD, she's a clinical psychologist for Kaiser Permanente in California, and she helps people manage chronic medical conditions, which are part of a comprehensive chronic pain management team. She also consults, she leads workshops, and she teaches continuing medical education courses. She's been treating adults with IBS for over 15 years. So again, we're going to be talking about their book, The Gut Solution for Parents with Children Who Have Recurrent Abdominal Pain and Irritable Bowel Syndrome. Children suffer and parents worry when their kids get stomach aches, constipation, diarrhea, indigestion, and bloating, and when it becomes chronic. These problems can disrupt an entire whole family. So let's bring them on to our show now. Hello there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi there, Denise. Thank you so much for having us. Hello, Denise. Thanks again for having us. Why don't you start out by telling me and... Michael, you can go first, and then Jessica. How you got on the path that you're on today? Denise, 
problem of irritable bowel syndrome is very common. It affects maybe um, uh, 5% or so of the population. And millions of people suffer, and it results in great expenditures. Some people estimate $60 billion a year is spent investigating the condition and trying to treat the condition. It's very frustrating. It's a chronic problem that will usually last most of that patient's lifetime. So it was very, very frustrating to see this happen, thinking that maybe we could do something. I sort of use the analogy, you know, the Back to the Future movie, when Doc comes back in the DeLorean to tell Marty McFly what his family's going to turn out like. Well, in a way, that's how I saw this problem. I was wondering if maybe we could go back and uh, try and intervene, usually around adolescence, to see if we could alter the natural history of this problem by working on the problems that we talked about in the book, you know, stress and uh, lack of exercise and uh, diet and sleep, and in particular education, and similar to what you said in your uh, acronym at the start of the show, K for knowledge is very important, and that's why we wrote the book, to help parents understand the problem, because that's the first leg in, in actually treating it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, Jessica? Well, that's an interesting question. I didn't start out in health psychology, but I saw in sports psychology the mind-body connection. And my dad's been a football coach. He's still coaching. He's almost 70. And he'd take these really small football teams, small players, young kids, and oftentimes end up in the state playoffs or the state winning the state championship. And I wondered what's the difference between the good athletes and the great athletes. And what we believe determines how we treat ourselves and what we allow in our environment. And all of these things impact our health so much. And that left an impression on me, and I went into health psychology. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I started with cardiac patients, but all of the chronic conditions have some things in common. Um, mm-hmm. What we believe our health behaviors, um, what we do with the information we learn about each chronic condition, it all really matters how good our life is going to be with that chronic condition. Sure. Well, I, I just loved your book. It's just, it was so well done. And it's oh, it's you. really a wonderful guide for anyone who um, has curiosities about these diseases or they're trying to manage someone that has it. And particularly in your Chapter 2 where you talk about the brain-gut axis, care to elaborate on that? Uh, sure. I, I think I'll hand it over to Jessica in a minute. But simply put, it's a central mechanism that allows information to flood through the brain to become very uh, much a conscious issue, whereas normally you wouldn't be aware of a lot of what goes on in your gut. And that central mechanism can be modified by certain methodologies that we talk about in the book. So and I'll let Jessica maybe handle it a bit further. Well, and that connection isn't a mystery. I mean, there's still so much we don't know about it, um, like with anything, with the universe. Mike makes that comparison. But there's a lot that we do know, and the brain having, you know, the information come into the brain, what we perceive, how Part, different parts of the brain interpret those messages directly impacts the physiology of the gut. And sometimes our guts are wise in their own right, and they know what's going on or what's you know stressful to us before our brain even puts it together. 
And so it's it's honoring both parts of those and their relationship to each other. Originally, those being one unit, the brain and the gut, and, you know, medical science has separated out these different parts of us, but they all work in conjunction with each other. If you were to take a, a, a practical approach, um, and kind of break it down for the layperson, in a brain-gut access, could could we say, for example, when somebody is extremely nervous over, uh, perhaps they have to do a public speaking engagement, or or a child has to get up in front of their classroom, and then all of a sudden the brain sends that that little message. And all of a sudden, they feel like they have an irritable bowel. Yeah. Is that part of what what you're trying to convey to my listeners? That's a great example because most people have had a situation where they felt so nervous, anxious, um, anticipating something that their guts responded. And one way is with diarrhea, you know, getting rid of whatever mm-hmm. is unnecessary. And another way, with especially with low-grade chronic stress, is constipation, and, and the gut's not moving into that rhythm that you would like um, in its natural state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And gas well, and bloating and dyspepsia, uh-huh. all of Isn't those. It, I, it's just kind of fascinating when you think about it. You know, this little message comes from the brain, and it just causes all this havoc in the body physically. You know, it's just, oh my goodness. Yeah, Let's it can end about... up havoc. Oh no, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, it can end up being havoc. But it, what we teach the kids is their guts are sensitive, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It can just mm-hmm. be information, and they pay mm-hmm. attention to their bodies. We want that. We don't want them feeling every little uh, piece of food being digested or every little pain. But we do <laughs> want them to pay attention. That oh, sure. the test coming up. And you know, school's starting again, and and my gut's tracking that; it's aware of that. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, we we call it visceral hypersensitivity, Denise. And studies have been done with barostats, which are balloons that are placed inside the gut, and they stretch the gut. And at a certain point, obviously, you're going to feel a lot of discomfort. But what's interesting is, in the majority of people with IBS and kids too, they feel the balloon at about half the volume. And the reason they do that is because a center in the brain called the pain gates in the midbrain, it, it acts to filter out, if you will, a lot of the um, impulses that we're getting. So we don't feel everything that goes on down there. But with these kids, uh, they are very uh, aware of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And in a way, mm-hmm. it's important to tell the kids that because we want to validate their symptoms. They, you know, the parents are tired of hearing the doctor say, well, we found nothing, because you know, this doesn't show up on a test. It's, but I liken it to a migraine headache. You know, migraine sufferers have real headaches, but you don't see anything on a CAT scan of their brain. Same thing with the kids. You can do colonoscopies and all sorts of blood tests. Nothing's going to show up, and hence the the kid often doesn't feel validated. But we try to tell the children in the class that this is real pain and that they have a different threshold and they feel feel at a, a, a different level. And, and I, I think I'll let Jessica describe her uh, cattle analogy because it's a great way to understand the, the, the pain gate. So um, I'll let you talk about that, Jessica. Sure. Thanks. Um, you know, the pain gate, you can think of it like a cattle gate where cattle are running through and it's open it's the path is wider and the you know the chemical gate 
when it's open, the pain message is much stronger. And there are mm-hmm. certain things you can do to influence that gate, to close it, and we feel a little bit less pain. Even though the problem is still real and it's still there, we feel less pain, and that adds to the quality of our life. And there are certain things like poor sleep, certain things you might eat or do that can open the pain gate. And um, what we try to do is get the kids in touch with those things that affect the gate so they feel they have some control over how much they're suffering. I think it's great to break it down like that for them. Makes it a little more understandable. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about your Ackerman um, Seeds. Sure. Yeah, that's, what is the uh, Seeds program? Well, Jessica came up with the acronym. It's an acronym for Stress, Education, Exercise, Diet, and Sleep. We try to make it very simple for the kids to remember what to do and the parents to remember what the triggers are and how they're going to manage those triggers. And uh, hence, you know, we wrote the book and the chapters are divided up to address all those points. And the program started around about 14 years ago and it's still going. And we were able to follow the kids in the program for at least four years after the start of the program. And we followed about 100 kids that went through the program. And interestingly, like all chronic pain programs, there's a fairly high no-show rate. Why certain kids sign up and are eligible for the program and don't come, it's not really clear. But we did have a control group that were very very well matched at baseline for visits with the kids who came to the program. So we followed both groups over that period of uh, four years and there was a striking difference in the number of visits, particularly the psychological visits. But not just that, but the uh, visits to the ER and also we noticed a drop in imaging. So the kids who were coming to the program weren't getting the unnecessary CAT scans and weren't uh, being exposed to unnecessary radiation because the, the parents understood what was going on and didn't tend to panic and bring them into the ER at, every time they had some discomfort. And it might not sound like a bad thing, but it, it's pretty stressful for the whole family when the, the kids oh, end up in the ER again and again. And, and they might end up finding something just incidentally on the scans that mm-hmm. can lead to parts being removed that really were healthy organs um, and causing more problems. Oh gosh! Uh, and Jessica, how, right how, here. I'm sorry. Nick, how ahead. big a um, how big does food and supplements um, enter into this equation in Good terms question. of helping them, helping them? Well, there, there was a lot of interest in this FODMAP diet, which was you know, looking at fermentable um, carbohydrates that they thought were producing a lot of gas. And because the irritable bowel patient already has visceral hypersensitivity, that little bit of gas becomes m- much more uncomfortable uh, compared to someone who doesn't have irritable bowel syndrome. So the, this um, diet was published in the New England Journal. I know the uh, person who did that was an Australian uh, Peter Gibson, who uh, is a professor in Victoria in Australia, and he's a very good researcher. The problem was the numbers in the study were small, and there was a crossover study, so that it's possible that the patients who did the diet didn't wash out completely before they swapped over to a regular diet. And unfortunately, since that publication, people are publishing now that it's not working. 
So unfortunately, that's taken a lot of the uh, wind out of the sails of, of our ability to mm. actually recommend certain diets. Uh, but there's no doubt that many irritable bowel patients have food preferences or food intolerances that affect their symptoms. But it's coming down to a more individual approach. Sure. The, the one-size-fits-all doesn't seem to work, but um, definitely eating foods with that cause less gas makes most people more comfortable. And and sometimes that means gluten or it means dairy um, or other veg- types of vegetables. Um, but there's no strict, perfect diet for a person mm. with IBS. Mm. But how they eat um, and when they eat uh-huh. is really important. Uh, I don't know if you want me to elaborate on on that, but uh, you know, I think how that would I think that would be very helpful. Very helpful. They the a lot of the kids skip breakfast and they their tummies hurt in the morning, and then they skip lunch because the lunchroom is just too crazy and it's hard to just be still and enjoy their meal, and then they're starving on the way home from school, so they grab anything and everything they can, and that's really tough on their stomach that's now been empty for most of the day and, and night. And they kind of load up at night if they can, and then the cycle starts again because they have pain from that pattern. A lot of families are eating on the run, highly processed foods, and they've lost that natural rhythm of breakfast, lunch, and, you know, a light dinner. Um, The calories we need are in the morning, and so a lot of the kids feel tired because they haven't eaten, you know, early in the morning um, when they need that the most. We we talk about sitting down and having a nice environment and um, encouraging parents not to, to press them for too many details of the day, but just to chat about whatever they want and, and listen to what the kids want to talk about. And eventually what's important to them will come out, um, and not to have dinner time be too heavy of a time. And, uh, Denise, a lot of the kids worry about having diarrhea at school, so they just don't eat because they have what we call a heightened uh-huh. gastrocolic reflex. Meaning, now, when we eat, we all have that reflex. Maybe two hours after a big meal, we want to go and have a bowel motion. But these kids have to go very quickly. This is a, a very exaggerated, amplified reflex. So they just avoid food all day because it's just embarrassing oh to go gosh. to the bathroom all the time. And most of them don't have accidents, but they're terrified. That's kind of their worst fear oh, in having an accident. That's, that's Very so hard do. for them. Well, we we really try to encourage them. them to set up their school situation so they have permission to use the restroom whenever they need to, and mm-hmm. they don't have to explain to anybody what they're doing and why it took them so mm-hmm. long. Oh, <laughs> yeah. my heart goes out to these kids. It really does. You and know, it's I'm, the cool really thing about the. It I'm is. Sorry. No, go ahead. The, the cool thing about the group is they see other kids that they're not alone. They're not suffering. Mm. Mm. Do they actually have little support groups for these children? Well, I I bet they're out there, but they're few and far between because it is an embarrassing thing. Um, the group mm. I'm referring to is is our classroom setting where. They sit for a little bit and learn about it, and then the kids get to go next door and do some games and learn some exercises and relaxation. And the parents really are the ones learning about the family environment and what they can do to support their child with IBS. Um, So it's there that the kids 
are kind of normalized and validated at the same time that what they're mm-hmm. going through there it isn't horribly unusual in fact it's pretty common 10 to 20% of children have this at some point and um they're not they're not freaks they're not so different hmm. is there a genetic sorry. component to it yes there there is uh, it, but what's interesting um is the uh, concordance in identical twins is not that high. You, know, you think, oh, they've got, they've got the same DNA, so if one's got IBS, the other one has to have IBS. And that's not true. It's only about 20%. But when they actually looked at non-identical twins, they found that it was more important if the mother had IBS rather than if the identical twin had IBS, which sort of points more to, na- uh, to na- nurture rather than nature. And I think that's our feeling too that, uh, you know, sure, these kids may be predisposed to some extent, but it's the environment that will make them express a gene that they might be carrying. And, and there's plenty of research going on, but now they've got about 60 candidate genes that might be involved, which tells you that it's a very diverse condition and not one gene is going to explain the whole thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we don't want to wait around for 20 years for the, for the answer, it's better to get in and, and help these kids right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And help, we can change well, our genetics as we age. It isn't a permanent change for true. many of our genes. They're, they're dynamic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, if the environment is what makes the gene express itself, then we need to talk about stress. Yes. <laughs> it's so important. Yeah, How does stress um, so play the biggest in this, in this whole thing. And the the chapter five is the biggest chapter, and and it was the first chapter written because it is key, and we never ever want to send the message that it's just stress, because it's stress is part of the picture, and we can't skip over it. Um, but we're not saying, oh, your stomach pain is just stress. It's stress that's now made its way into the body and it's settled there and it's causing a lot of problems. Um, But talking about it and bringing awareness to the daily chronic hassles, but also the big things, the big changes for kids, school starting, school ending, sibling going off to college, to the military, and certainly... Um, problems at, at home, whatever they might be, family moving in, moving out, separation, divorce, arguing, all of those things for certain kids are going to show up in their stomach pain, in their digestion. You know, it's it's pretty interesting. They've done studies where where children, if they're in the same room or they can, within hearing distance of parents that are arguing, they have found that there's certain hormones that show up in their urine that are yeah. elevated. Probably cortisol and, and some mm-hmm. other ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. even if the child isn't the target, just as a bystander, they're absorbing it. And they're mm-hmm. the the kids with IBS especially seem to be have very sensitive thermometer for, you know, what's going on in the room. And and they take it in, you know, and they, they internalize it even if it's not directly their their problem um but kids kind of hold us accountable that way as adults that we can't just think about ourselves we have to think about everyone else that we're impacting around us 
Mm-hmm. Well, you have some excellent stress busters in your book. And oh, good. You saw those. Oh, oh, absolutely. And I think that the probably the most important one was when you wake up first thing in the morning, that you really take the first ten minutes, you know, make those your early ten minutes, and, you know, get yourself ready for the day in a really relaxed way, not in a rush, rush, bustle, bustle, out the door way. Yeah. Yeah. Get it right from the get-go and self-care first. Uh, a lot of these mm-hmm. kids, they no matter what time they get up, they're being rushed because someone's saying, hurry up, you know, get out of the bathroom, let's get going, um, eat your breakfast, you know, and they really need to balance their knowledge about the disorder along with their own intuition, like like the mm-hmm. I and your, your acronym PINK, um, you know, balancing those things and, and doing what's best for them long term, not just um, that day, which might be avoiding school, but we we want them to take good care of themselves and continue with their regular routine. Sure. What are the statistics for um, children that have IBS and then going on into adulthood with it? Well, uh, Denise, at least 60% will go on to be adults with IBS. That's high. That's really yeah. high. It may even be higher than that, but that's been published. And oh. it doesn't mean that it'll always be as bad as it is when we see them. We kind of see them in sure. what Dr. Lawson's found is their crisis year. And mm-hmm. it may go away and come and go depending what's going on in their life. And it it may just be a flare-up here and there that isn't horrible, um, depending mm-hmm. on what what they do with the research that we have uh, the information that we do have about the brain and about the gut and what we can control. Sometimes you can't avoid a flare-up, and it's nobody's fault. It's it's just the way the body needed to respond. Sure. Well, as parents, you have a, a, a very uh, large uh, responsibility in you know trying to help your, your child with, with this condition, and... Everybody has their own parenting styles. So, you know, as a psychologist, Jessica, how do you um, guide the parents on this? Well, first we we really support them in that they show up at the class and they or they get the book because they're concerned, and that matters mm-hmm. the most. They want to do what's best. Um, we notice sometimes there's a pattern um, that one parent is overcoddling the sick child and the other parent is saying, oh, you know, this isn't real and they're just faking it and whatever. And that that disagreement is the most stressful for the child. Of course, either extreme isn't good either, but trying to come to the middle and saying, this is real, the pain is real, um, but we need to keep supporting them to go to school and to do as much as they can but with a gentle, you know, firm but really gentle um, loving kindness rather than uh, punishing them for feeling bad or, you know, pushing them through it or getting frustrated with them. Um, and the parents get that. You know, they they understand that no, they're not perfect and they're doing what they can and we can all do better. 
consistency and reward. And the other thing, Alex, is... I'm sorry, go uh ahead. No, go ahead. Well, the mother's very important, and studies have been done by Rona Levy in... uh, She's in in, uh, Portland. She has uh, shown that when the mum is very stressed out, um, she catastrophizes and is anxious about little things, the kid uh, is more likely to go to the doctor. And so while we... Tell mum she's not the problem. She really is part of the solution. And we really work hard, especially uh, Jessica works very hard, to help the parents understand how important it is for them to do role models to relax and and to understand what's going on. Hmm. About half of the, the parents who come to the class at first are not convinced that what their child has is IBS. Because the symptoms have been so severe, they think it's got to be something worse. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're, the doctor's just giving me this label because they don't know what to do. And and the doctor really does. They they get it right more than 95 98% of the time. And so they do mm-hmm. know, but they sometimes aren't good at explaining what to do or they don't have time to explain all of the information of what to do. And... Once once a parent can see and be reassured that it is IBS that they're dealing with, they can move ahead pretty quickly on what they want to change in their household or their routine that will model for the children but also mm-hmm. um, improve the whole health of, of everybody. I like the fact that in your book you also talk about complementary and alternative medicine and how it can help. I'm big on that. Yeah, um, Yeah. well, there's not a lot of data in children. Uh, In terms of medications, they they have such a high placebo response, it's been hard to prove that uh, drugs like Elevil or Amitriptyline are really beneficial. And, however, you know, there is some data on peppermint oil, which is pretty safe. And as long as you take it as an enteric-coated form, it's uh, something that's worth trying if if the child's having a lot of pain and a lot of discomfort and bloating. Um, And there is uh, some good data from Europe, because we don't tend to use it much here, but the Europeans uh, feel like it is very effective. But most of the time, we, we try to avoid medications in children. And in terms of alternative medicine, we use self-guided imagery, which is a way of teaching relaxation. And we have a very good health educator who has made CD-ROMs for the children to take home, one's for sleep, one's for stress. And I think that's been fairly effective as well. Yeah, that's, oh. I, I've recently been reading about biofeedback too. Have, are you familiar with that term, yes. Denise? Oh, absolutely. And, and absolutely. that the physiological feedback in real time directly back to the patient. And mm-hmm. so Dr. Richard Gewurz in San Diego um, has done some research with IBS with kids and adults and finding some pretty good evidence that biofeedback can kind of speed up that learning on controlling our own physiology in ways that we didn't think we could. Mm-hmm. Very, mm-hmm. very fun. And we teach the kids yoga as well. I think that's a good part of the treatment, teaching them something physical and, and mental as well. 
And if they incorporate mm-hmm. that, and I think we, we're not sure they do, but you know, just looking at our results, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that you know we've done some good, and not sure I'm not sure exactly what part of the program is the most beneficial. But we're kind of hoping that the kids sort of take it all up and use it. And I'm sure when they get a benefit, they're going to use it more because of just a you know, natural sort of response. Well, this is working for me. I'm going to keep doing this. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well. You also talk about probiotics and prebiotics. I'm a huge proponent, and of course, I take them myself. Um, I, from the research and how I understand it, our immune function actually starts in the gut, in the stomach area. So probiotics put in the good bacteria and strengthen that. How does that help your children? Well, the disappointing thing about prebiotics is the gas production, and and that's where it's been very hard to um, use that type of approach. Now, the um, probiotics, which are the actual um, cultured organisms, they um, seem to help bloating and gas more than anything else. And I think if there's a big problem with gas and bloating, that's something you know that's worth trying. Mm-hmm. It's been a little bit disappointing in the big picture of whether they're really that beneficial. Oh. Uh, you know, they're definitely I... no, no, not beneficial for constipation. Uh, they might be uh, beneficial for diarrhea, but they don't do any harm. And, and, it's, and But our experience, Denise, and I'm not trying to be too, too negative about it because it's still worth a try, but by the time one of the, the child has come to us, they've gone through the gamut of treatments and that's why the parents are so desperate they want to have an answer they want sure. the child to get better uh, and so I, I suspect that in the milder cases maybe there is some benefit but again by the time they're as severe uh, as they are when they come to see us mm-hmm. it's likely they've mm-hmm. tried all those things when of I, course. I suspect there are these subgroups too like Mike was saying they've maybe been filtered out before they get to our program but there are subgroups, you know, where people will find the FODMAP works for them and then the group over here, the probiotics work, and the group over here that answers yoga and, and maybe a, a mix and match of different things that are going to help any particular person. But it's retraining mm-hmm. the central nervous system and the enteric system mm-hmm. and how it's functioning to unlearn the the response, you know, the the IBS response and learn a new response of how it can stay calm amidst the storm, you know. Well, this is definitely a very complex uh, situation. Um, Listeners, if you're just joining in now, we're talking with Dr. Michael Lawson and Jessica Del Pozo, Ph.D. Uh, They're the authors of the book, The Gut Solution. How does exercise impact this? Well, one thing you alluded to, Denise, uh, is the, the hormones that are produced during stress. And studies have shown that when kids exercise, their cortisol levels, uh, when they're stressed out, go uh, uh, are lower than those who don't exercise. Uh-huh. In addition, uh, we generate endorphins when we exercise. These are the body's pleasure chemicals that circulate in the cerebrospinal fluid around the brain. And that pain gate we talked about has a lot of receptors uh, for endorphins that can then lock on and actually improve pain pathway um, problems. And it it probably doesn't help 
that when kids are stressed, many of them are in front of a screen and they're not able to move their bodies and kind of work through some of that naturally. And without Mm -hmm. regular movement, just playing outside, um, if we don't have that built into our day, then we do have to build in, you know, an exercise routine. But the the best thing would just be for them to get outside and run around and, and play and get some of that out of their bodies rather than sitting in front of a screen and, and accumulating more stress and tension. Yeah, and as, as Jessica alluded to, it's not just one problem uh, or one, one part of the solution. Um, I mean, sorry, let me original. Uh, it's not the whole, whole solution because we have kids that come in who are competitive soccer players or swimmers and they're stressed out by that competition even though they're very fit and their endorphin levels are probably pretty high. And they actually found that the worst IBS occurs in rowers. And rowers get up early in the morning, they train hard, they're very competitive. And so it's not just exercise that's going to fix this problem, but it is part Mm -hmm. of the solution. And if you take the high competition, high achievement part out, it probably takes out all of the negatives of, mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. potentially of exercise, and you know we want it to be fun, especially for the younger kids. It should be of enjoyable, course. not high pressure. Why does why does IBS affect sleep? Mm. Sleep is one of the first things to go um, with pain, with stress, anxiety, um, difficulty falling asleep, but then also not sleeping through the night or waking up too early. So all different types of insomnia can come with it. And a lot of the kids with tummy pain get headaches and have poor sleep too. Um, What we teach them is to get a set routine. So they're, and that's a 24-hour routine. You know, try to have their eating in the morning, during the daytime, whenever their tummies are ready but earlier than later, and eat less at night and turn the screens off late at night and get their bodies ready to really go into deep, restful sleep. And the the quantity isn't as important as the quality of sleep. And if they oversleep in on the weekends, you know, messing it up on Saturday and Sunday, and then they try to go to bed early Sunday night like most of us do, then they might get sleep, but it won't be good quality. So we we let them know about sleep architecture and and how the different stages of sleep are affected Mm -hmm. by what they do during the day. And we know if they exercise, to tie that in, that that night they actually get more deep or delta sleep, delta wave sleep. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly um, is a concern because children are growing and they really do need their sleep. Yes, yes. And they need Mm -hmm. the the growth hormone that's released during those deep stages of sleep. Yeah. Mhm. Well, I think we've really covered most of what was in your book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, our listeners need to purchase your book for all the real details and and the how-tos and the wins. Is there anything else that you two would like to add? Well, I think um one thing I think Jessica alluded to, I think you said, Susan, is, um, when these kids come in, things get found that are incidental. And it has been shown that operations are so frequent in this uh, population 
the cholecystectomy rate or gallbladder removal rate is three times what uh, it is in people who don't have IBS. Its t- uh, appendicectomy rates are double. And um, even back surgeries are far more common in patients with irritable bowel syndrome. And the point being that the more you go to the doctor, the more likely you are to get something done. You know, and, and everyone's frustrated by this condition, not just the patient and the parents, but the doctors as well. And you know, as they say, if you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And what we've found, though, is that this problem results in a lot of unnecessary surgery and even mortality. Uh, it's been suggested that roughly 6,000 people a year die from unnecessary gallbladder removal surgery or cholecystectomies. So this isn't just you know a, a benign condition that you know, can't really hurt you. It can, and uh, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. not just expensive. It, it's potentially dangerous. Jeez. I mean, I, I our society, it's, it's astounding when you see the numbers, and it's, this isn't the only condition that we're over-treating. People want to be so sure that they don't miss anything. We're, we're leaning too far in the other direction where we're doing too much, and now it's, it's costing lives, not just money or you know, time. It's, it's actually getting riskier to, to do too much. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. You know, even CAT scans, you know, that um, fa- they found that CT scans are overdone in adolescents with irritable bowel syndrome you know, because the child comes into the ER and there's usually no history available to the doctor who sees the child, mm-hmm. so they are on the side of not missing things. So the child gets an unnecessary CT scan, and some studies suggest that 7% of all cancers are the result of excessive radiation. So it's very important not to, yeah, what we tell parents is it's important not to overreact, as Jessica said, and take the child in every time they have a problem. And we try to tell them about the red flags, things, you know, if there's a fever, if there's blood in the stool, things like that. Yeah, sure, you, you take notice of that and you do something about it. So, yeah. yeah. And the, the good news is the whole reason that this started, this program was started, is to catch them early. And they are more equipped to deal with other problems they have in the future because they went through this experience of IBS and they learned these skills and they go off to college and sometimes they have a little flare-up, but they're doing great and they're functioning and they have a good quality of life. And we, we think that the early intervention part is key, educating the family, not just one person in the family, and then giving them other mm-hmm. resources to get support and to to fill in what, whatever they're they're needing, if whatever they need more information about. Well, I wanted to get um, back to Dr. Lawson's um, comment about radiation and CT scans. A lot of our listeners are not informed on the extent of the radiation that that a CT scan gives. For instance, one CT scan for the abdominal area. That, to put it in proper perspective, it equates to close to 600 x-rays. It's astounding. It is astounding. And we have to remember that these young ladies in particular have breast tissue that's developing, they have ovaries that are developing, and that is a bad time to have any radiation. 
uh, while mm-hmm. cells are turning over. They're very, you know, the DNA is mm-hmm. more susceptible to damage. So we don't want to set that up. Uh, but unfortunately, that's what's happening. And, and as Jessica said, you know, part part of the reason we did this program is to help children and um, avoid these unnecessary yeah. tests. And you know, 30% of the colonoscopies we do are done on patients with irritable bowel for irritable bowel. And um, that's, that's just not necessary, and it's hellishly expensive. And, it, and it's hard for, for medicine, for physicians to say no if a parent is doing, you know, in the best interest of their child, they're pushing for more testing. They think it's a good idea, and really what they need is to be armed with more information so they can mm-hmm. make a better choice going forward. Mm-hmm. And if we can make them well, better, then then we reassure mm-hmm. the parent that we're on the right track. It's so empiric of therapy, course. if it works, then you've probably got the right diagnosis. And it's true that 98% of the time you can make the diagnosis without any test, just by a history alone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you've both made some really good points. It's been an excellent, excellent interview. Why don't you you let our listeners know where they can purchase your book? Uh, The book's available on Amazon and on Create Space. And our website is thegutsolution.com, and it can also link to purchase the book. Yeah, and there's some videos on that on that website as well that can help. Wonderful. And then, if they want to reach either one of you, how would they go about doing that? There's the contact tab on thegutsolution.com. And okay. Yeah, we both look at the questions, and we can both answer from our unique perspectives and, and try to get any questions oh. that have well, that's, answered. That's a great service, <laughs> really a great service to everyone. Well, thank you for well, helping you us so get much. the word out. Definitely. Yeah, thanks, it's really important that we, we try to help as many people as possible. That's what the show's all about. And that's what you're all about. Thanks again. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Thank Lisa. you. Bye. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, listeners, that concludes our show for today. Please join us again next week. We'll have another great, great show for you. If you missed part of this broadcast, you can listen to it again. It will be in iTunes. It will also remain on Blog Talk Radio's website as well as Health Media Now Radio website. Thanks for joining in. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? 